0: The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life contains strong adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. It also deals with serious incidents that may be distressing to some. If you at any time require support, please contact your local crisis centre. Hello and welcome to a brand new season of Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and in today's episode, we'll be exploring the life and music of Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain will be remembered as a highly influential and groundbreaking musician, who with the help of his band Nirvana... ...brought the underground punk rock and grunge scene to the attention of popular music listeners from around the world... ...writing mega hits and brilliant songs such as Smells Like Teen Spirit, About A Girl, Polly, Heart Shaped Box and Come As You Are... ...in this episode we follow Kurt's happy start to life before his parents divorce ultimately turned his world upside down... ...leading him to steer down a dark path which was reflective in his music, art and life choices... Despite Kurt being the major factor of Nirvana's insane rise to overnight success, Kurt would struggle with the pressure of fame, depression stemming from his early teens, a conflicting relationship with Courtney Love, the media's constant conjecture and scrutiny over him, and his excessive heroin use, ultimately leading to his world spiraling out of control and the tragic end to his life at just the age of 27. This is a story of Kurt Cobain. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Kurt Cobain was born Kurt Donald Cobain on the 20th of February 1967 at Grays Harbour Community Hospital in the town of Aberdeen, Washington in the United States of America. Weighing in at 7.5 pounds to his 19-year-old mother Wendy Elizabeth Freidenberg and 21-year-old father, Donald Leland Cobain. Kurt's mother, Wendy, worked as a waitress and as a stay-at-home mum, while Kurt's dad, Donald, worked at a service station as a motor mechanic in the township of Aberdeen. The town and environment of Aberdeen would become highly instrumental in shaping Kurt's outlook on life and music, being the place he spent a majority of his childhood and teenage years. Aberdeen is situated at the eastern end of Grey's Harbour, and sits beside the mouth of the Chihalas River that flows to the Pacific Ocean. It is located around 120 miles from Seattle, and had a population of around 16,000 people at the time. Due to its geographical positioning, Aberdeen would receive large amounts of rainfall all year round, and it was often an overcast, dark and gloomy town due to this. Making matters worse were the sawmills that began closing down at the time, the town relied heavily on its logging and fishing industry, with the once booming logging industry getting hit the hardest with 28 of the 46 mills closing down during the Great Depression, and around the time Kurt was born, more mills were shut down due to a lack of resources remaining in the area. This led to mass job cuts, forcing unemployment rates to skyrocket and making the town a generally unhappy place to be, both mentally and financially, with storefronts being boarded up left vacant. Kurt's parents were also in this boat and struggled financially to get by but made do with what they had. Kurt's father Donald worked at the service station mechanics for just $5 an hour which made it difficult to pay bills and a mortgage but the kids never went without food. The town had limited activities and events to keep the locals busy and entertained so a drinking and drug culture would infiltrate the town with the local pubs or dive bars being the most popular places to gather in town when the paycheck came in at the end of the month. Despite these harsh times, the Cobains were poor financially, but rich with a happy and loving family life. Not much seemed to affect the bright, happy and always on the go attitude of the young Kurt Cobain, as he would run around smiling and playing with his toy piano, drums, microphone and guitar, as he blows kisses to the camera, as seen in the biopic Montage of Heck. In 1969, at the age of two, Kurt's parents purchased their first home together at 1210 East 1st Street, Aberdeen, moving in with Kurt and awaiting the arrival of their second child. From very early on at just the age of two, Kurt loved to draw, paint and be artistic, which was inspired by his grandmother Iris, as she was a professional artist. At the age of two, Kurt especially loved to sing and dance to his mother's Beatles, ABBA, monkeys and pop records. He would grow up listening to bands such as ELO, KISS, The Cars and The Ramones, being just a few of his favourites. His family at this time were very close and loving, with Kurt being the apple of their eye and centre of attention. He was their first grandchild on both sides of the family to be born. Everyone was coming over all the time to adore the new prized family member. He was described by his parents, grandparents, aunts and uncle as happy, smiley, sweet, kind, thoughtful and always thinking about other people's feelings, and loving of life. He was always exploring, and his proud grandfather Leland recalls Kurt coming over to his and his grandmother Iris's house, where he would pull all of the pots and pans out from the kitchen cupboards, and start hitting on them with some sticks, like he was playing the drums. Kurt would smash them as loud as possible, and this led his grandfather to believe he would one day be a drummer, as he repeated this routine every time he visited. Music ran in the family with Kurt's uncle Chuck from his mother's side being the drummer in a band called the Beachcombers who played cover versions of the Beach Boys music. Over the years, Kurt would attend his uncle's rehearsals and would play the band's drums and loved every minute of it. His aunt Mary Earl played in a number of bands on guitar in the surrounding area while his great uncle Delbert was an Irish tenor with Kurt's father's side of the family's roots coming from Ireland and his mother's side of the family being of Dutch and German heritage. On the 24th of April 1970, when Kurt was three years old, he welcomed his baby sister Kimberly Cobain into the world. Due to Kurt being highly energetic, his parents worried he would be too overexcitable around his baby sister. But Kurt was a great brother who loved his sister dearly. Kurt just couldn't sit still and had to be on the go or sitting upside down or in an odd way all the time, as he just had too much energy. His mother Wendy recalls Kurt's early days involving swinging upside down on a rocking chair while watching his favourite TV show, Sesame Street, repeating every line, as he had seen them all so many times. At just the age of four, Kurt started to play the piano and was able to adapt melodies he heard on the radio and convert them straight to the piano. During kindergarten, Kurt excelled at art and amazed everyone, drawing like a pro by age 6. Kurt's ability to draw so well at such a young age was incredible as he produced perfect images of his favourite characters from TV such as Goofy, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Over his childhood years, his drawings progressed from detailed and accurate depictions of DC superheroes such as Aquaman, to drawings and paintings of a range of sceneries such as lakes and lighthouses, to drawings of people and abstract style art. His grandfather and those close to him thought he would have made a great artist, and thought he might pursue this as a career, as well as drumming when he was older. Kurt, along with his sister, loved the film The Wizard of Oz, which would remain an inspiration to Kurt with his artwork, And even in his music videos much later in life at age seven after years of wondering if kurt had a condition such as adhd or something similar wendy took kurt to a pediatrician who ran a simple flashlight test and prescribed kurt with a drug similar to ritalin to calm his over energetic and hyperactivity down as he was always full of energy and on the go jumping off of things and knocking stuff over The paediatrician believed it was in fact a behavioural or energetic disorder, most likely ADHD. Proving to be a handful for his parents, he was also prescribed sedatives to counteract the insomniac type side effects. Kurt's father Donald often found Kurt's over energetic ways to be too much at times and would often lose his patience with Kurt, upsetting him and embarrassing the youngster. Donald would use excessive parenting methods at times and would often belittle and embarrass Kurt which would lead to a lifelong hatred for being made a fool of or being embarrassed. Kurt would later claim that his father would smack Kurt in the face in public or even put him in knuckle-driving headlocks for doing the slightest thing wrong, such as spilling his drink when out at a restaurant as a means of discipline. Kurt would later reveal in his personal journal and recordings that he kept that he couldn't understand why or how you could do that to a child. Kurt also revealed that his father smacked him all the time and that he developed a fear or panic response that would last for the rest of his life whenever he spilled or knocked something over. He even disclosed that he felt like he grew up without a father figure. Generally, there wasn't a lot to do around Aberdeen, so kids in the area had to make their own fun. So Kurt and his mates would go fishing and swimming in the Wishka River and would go exploring down by the Young Street Bridge. Kurt would have a great imagination growing up and ran around in a Batman suit pretending to fight evil villains. He would play with his imaginary friend he liked to call Boda, and he would also enjoy playing dress-ups. When Kurt turned 8 years old, his auntie Mary Earl gave him his first real guitar, which was an electric Hawaiian guitar and an amp. She was a huge influence on his musical tastes, and later on his career, as she too was a budding musician, as mentioned earlier. With Kurt describing her as the most helpful person in his life regarding music, Aunt Mary Earl also purchased him a stack of the Beatles records and a bass drum that he would strap on and walk around the neighbourhood beating his drum to the Beatles classics, most notably his favourite of their tracks, Hey Jude. In 1975, when Kurt was 8 years old, his mother Wendy asked for a divorce, ending her 10-year marriage to Donald. Up until this point, Kurt was described by his school friends and family as easy to get along with and that he was very easygoing. But this would all rapidly change as Kurt struggled to come to terms with his parents' divorce. Kurt was devastated and his family were all shocked to hear of the news. Kurt was embarrassed to have divorced parents and at the time it wasn't as common as it is today to have a broken or separated family as most use the old stay together for the kids motto. Kurt was confused and hated seeing his parents fight all the time. Kurt's grandfather also noticed a change and said that he was a good kid up until the divorce with his world being turned upside down. He said it hit him hard and his parents didn't give him enough attention. The divorce would have adverse effects on Kurt and would ultimately change his whole outlook on life and his personality forever. He was now described as extremely sensitive reclusive quiet and that he lost most of his outgoing personality after this event as any young child would kurt just wanted his parents to be together and couldn't wrap his head around the concept kurt would soon rebel and was quoted as saying i remember feeling ashamed for some reason i was ashamed of my parents i couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because i desperately wanted to have the classic you know typical family i wanted that security So I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that. One thing Kurt revealed in his audio tapes and journals is that he used to enjoy imagining as a child that he was an alien and was adopted by his mother and father after his real alien parents in a UFO dropped him off from another planet. This notion most likely became more apparent after his parents divorce as he felt unwanted and wished he had an alien family that would one day take him home and away from all this drama. Kurt would even pretend to talk to his alien parents every night, and occasionally, he felt like he met rare others like him that were also dropped off here. Kurt said, I'd always like to toy with it in my mind. It was really fun to pretend that there's some special reason for me to be here. Initially after the divorce, Kurt and his sister Kimberly stayed with their mother for around three months to a year. But Kurt began rebelling and doing nasty things such as locking the babysitter in the closet or out of the house and unscrewing all the light bulbs from the light fittings for no good reason other than to gain attention he so desperately craved from his parents or in this case, his mother. Kurt also started writing phrases on his wall including I hate mum, I hate dad, dad hates mum, mum hates dad, it simply makes you want to be sad. Kurt's mother Wendy could no longer put up with Kurt's objection to their divorce and the rebellious behaviour got too much. She packed up Kurt's bags and dropped him off on his own at his father's place in a trailer park in Montesano around 11 miles from Aberdeen. Initially Donald was over the moon to have Kurt stay with him and Kurt had missed his father despite the way he was treated by him at times. Kurt was separated from his sister Kimberly, who stayed with their mother, and he missed her dearly, only seeing her every now and then when she stayed at Donald's with Kurt on weekends. The two siblings would bond over their parents' divorce, and would have each other's back, despite often having a friendly brother-sisterly rivalry. Despite being kicked out of his mother's home, he still loved her, and wanted them all to live together again, but this was never going to happen, despite attempts by family members to reunite the two. Kurt's mother soon began dating again, and Kurt felt it was uncomfortable, and he was no longer the centre of attention, so instead, he enjoyed the attention of his single father. For the first six months, Kurt loved living with his father, and the two got along great. Donald would take Kurt camping, fishing, bowling, and out to ball games. Kurt would put on puppet shows and entertain his dad, and Donald even took Kurt to work with him on the weekends, which Kurt found boring, but instead he made his own fun. As his father now worked at a logging plantation tallying up how many logs were passing through the plant, Kurt spent his time playing imaginative games such as superheroes or cops and robbers in amongst the stacks of timbers. He would sit in the office drawing, making prank phone calls or as simple as taking a nap. But one of his fondest memories would be when he would sit in his father's van and listen to Queen's album News of the World featuring We Are the Champions and We Will Rock You on repeat on 8-track. Only problem was, Kurt drained the battery on the van a number of times, resulting in the two being stranded at the end of the day at the workplace. Kurt loved the fact that he was the centre of his father's attention, and that his father seemed to be more loving towards Kurt this time around. It was like his father was relishing in the role, despite being harsh at times, but fair. Donald even promised Kurt that he would never remarry, which pleased Kurt. But things once again quickly changed when Donald met a woman named Jenny Westerby and soon decided to remarry, breaking the promise he made to his now 11-year-old son, who obviously took his promise literally. Kurt would lose all trust for his father over this broken promise and their relationship would significantly be affected and would ultimately never recover. Once again, Kurt resorted to his rebellious ways to fight for the attention of his father. Donald enrolled Kurt in Little League Baseball and was supportive by turning up to every game to watch him, but Kurt would purposely strike himself out. Due to Donald's new marriage, he started to pay far less attention towards Kurt, and all of the fun outings and adventures they were enjoying previously were put to end completely. Kurt felt like he wasn't important anymore, and to make matters worse, he didn't get along with his stepmother Jenny, and grew to resent her, despite her efforts in the beginning to make him feel part of the family on top of this kurt had to share and compete for attention with his new stepbrother james and stepsister mindy and later in 1979 when kurt was at the age of 12 his newborn half-brother chad Cobain was born with kurt dropping off his father's radar altogether kurt felt like his step-siblings and half-brother were definitely favored and kurt was often grounded as his father felt like he had to be neutral but would evidently side with his new family and overcompensate with the discipline to appear like he wasn't favouring Kurt at all. Kurt took this as rejection and further rebelled when he was enrolled in wrestling by his father, who was passionate about the sport and thought it would be a good way for Kurt to release his anger and frustration. Despite being quite good at wrestling initially, in one particular match where Kurt was favoured to win, Kurt purposely had himself pinned by his opponent and surrendered just to frustrate and embarrass his father, leading to Kurt being pulled out of the sport. Kurt would lay around watching TV, refuse to do chores, and he was said to be nasty and torment his step-siblings and half-brother. Kurt started struggling at school and skipping classes, and even bullied a boy at school which began to worry his father and stepmother. His stepmother Jenny says Kurt always wanted to win and was defiant usually getting angry when he didn't get his own way and that he wanted to be the most loved out of the children. Jenny and Donald took Kurt for therapy regarding his behaviour but nothing of course changed. Kurt was clearly after a reaction or any attention whatsoever from his parents but was completely ignored or punished without looking at the reasons for his rebellious behaviour. Kurt's sister Kim Claimed at one stage when Kurt was around 12 or 13 years old, he was grounded for a whole year with no TV for something as petty as forgetting to feed the dog. Life was tough living with his stepmother and Donald, and it was obvious to Kim and Kurt that their father wanted a fresh start in life and didn't want his old family messing with his new one, causing the pair to feel even more rejected. For Kurt's 14th birthday, his Uncle Chuck gave him a life changing choice between two gifts, including a bicycle or an acoustic guitar. Kurt, of course, selected the guitar, and from here on out, he would barely put down a guitar for the rest of his life. Kurt was able to put all of his emotions, anger, frustration, and time into playing the guitar. It made him feel focused and was his outlet. Kurt became so reclusive around this time that he would mostly sit in his isolated bedroom downstairs, skipping family dinners and time together to play his guitar and listen to music. Kurt would play his guitar every night before bed, playing just the three chords he knew how after learning ACDC's Back in Black, and screaming along to Brian Johnson's vocals, thinking it was his version of punk music. Although he was right-handed, Kurt would play left-handed instead. Kurt started by playing covers of 80s punk music, and also listened to bands such as Motorhead, The Cars, and Led Zeppelin, with one of Kurt's idols being Lemmy Kilmeister of Motorhead. Kurt started learning to play Stairway to Heaven after he took guitar lessons for around 2-3 to three months, with the guitarist from Uncle Chuck's band. Although lessons were put on hold due to Kurt's schooling falling behind, with Kurt from here on out having to teach himself. Punk and rock music wouldn't be the only major influence on Kurt's life, as he stated that the movie, Over the Edge, was influential on his rebellious, angry punk style as the movie involves teenage rebellion in a high school that was based on a true story. Sadly, Kurt would reportedly lose the acoustic guitar that he got from his uncle when he started jamming with some mates, only to lose it in an old abandoned factory where they would practice. When Kurt attempted to come back for his guitar, he found it all smashed up and was forced to find a replacement. During junior and senior high school, Kurt attended Montesano High School and Beacon Avenue Elementary High School, while living with his father in the area. At Montesano, he had a good group of friends who also said that after the divorce, he was very reclusive, quiet, shy, and preferred to be alone. Kurt was a very smart individual, but as a student, he struggled to apply himself, and rarely received good grades, mostly receiving C's and D's. But despite this, he excelled in arts class, receiving A's. Kurt appreciated his male art teacher who encouraged his interesting artworks, even sending them away to enter into competitions on Kurt's behalf, despite Kurt not wanting to be recognised for them. Kurt also got along well with his female English teacher who loved his wacky stories and journal entries, noticing he had a talent for writing. Despite participating in many sports teams, he wasn't that interested and preferred the expressive attraction of art and music. He attended a band program while at school here and played the drums in a number of school concerts. His teacher described him as a standout of the band. His friends explained that every chance Kurt got, even if they were on their way to PE, Kurt would run to the music room and start banging away on the drums, impressing his schoolmates who thought he was amazing. At the age of 13, while in 8th grade, Kurt hurt his back badly during PE after his back gave out while jumping with a skipping rope. Kurt went to hospital after complaining he couldn't breathe and initial fears were that he may have broke something in his back. It turned out that he had slipped a disc in his back and was later diagnosed with scoliosis by a chiropractor. Kurt was told he would need to wear a back brace to straighten himself out, but he refused to wear it. This would lead to Kurt having a slouch in his back and would become worse after years of carrying his guitar strapped to his body. He experienced severe pain from the injury for a while, until a chronic stomach condition overpowered the pain in his back, despite the back pain still being there. It was during his schooling at Montesano High School that Kurt befriended a male student who identified as gay. Kurt was seemingly unaware of this until one day when Kurt's friend came onto him and tried to kiss him, but Kurt respectfully declined and remained close friends with him, respecting his friend's sexuality. Because Kurt's best friend was gay, Kurt was bullied for hanging around with him and was also harassed constantly, labelled as gay, and called horrible and nasty names, until the point that Kurt decided to identify as gay himself, despite not actually feeling this way, as he thought it would get all of the jocks off his back, which it did. Kurt described the feeling of identifying as being gay as a freeing experience. Kurt was also bullied by the jocks about not being overly interested in sport and gym class and was especially awkward as many of the jocks were nervous about undressing in front of Kurt and his friend in the change rooms, thinking he was interested in them. Kurt's friend was said to have helped Kurt through many tough times. He was always there for him and said that he saved him from ending it all a few times. Kurt identified himself as a special type of geek and that although he was popular in some sense, he was considered a misfit. Much later in life, Kurt would reveal about the time that I started being really proud of the fact that I was gay, even though I wasn't. Kurt also stated that he is gay in spirit and probably could be bisexual. He also said, I am not gay, although I wish I were, just to piss off the homophobes. Through this high school experience, Kurt would take a protective stance and stand up for those that identify as part of the gay community. Kurt would also reportedly be bullied for his small and skinny frame and to combat this he began wearing extra layers of clothing to appear larger this is an insecurity that Kurt would feel throughout the rest of his life as part of his image would be to layer clothing while he is said to have hated the way he looked it was in ninth grade at Montesano high school that Kurt befriended a boy that was three years older than him named Buzz Osborne sporting a large curly afro the charismatic Buzz Osborne was writing to heavy punk music and even had his own successful band called The Melvins, known for being one of the heaviest bands around. Buzz would occasionally sit with Kurt and show him some punk rock magazines and one day Buzz invited Kurt to come hang out at their band's rehearsal space. Buzz became a mentor to Kurt and Kurt looked up to him. Kurt was inspired by Buzz and his band The Melvins to listen to more heavier punk rock and attempted to start his own band. Kurt's first concert he went to would be at a Melvins show, and he would attend nearly every show they did in the area. Kurt also attended Sammy Hagar and Quarterflash and loads of other punk rock bands at the time as the underground scene started to make waves. As there were no record stores around in Aberdeen or Montesano, Buzz would prove to be a very important figure in Kurt's musical tastes. By making Kurt mixtapes of some of his own favourite bands with angsty, rage and rebellion type songs, ...that appealed to Kurt and represented where he was at in life... ...including Black Flag with Damaged, The Stooges with Raw Power... ...Wipers with Youth of America and The Sex Pistols with Nevermind the Bollocks. Kurt played these tracks religiously every day until he wore the tapes out. He absolutely loved them. They made him feel like he wasn't alone and they helped him through some tough times. At age 15, Kurt's stepmother Jenny grew tired of Kurt's behaviour... ...and spoke to his father Donald and said, quote, he's got to get out of the house. The decision was made to kick Kurt out, sending him to live with four sets of aunts and uncles... ...on both sides of the family and both sets of grandparents all within the same year. Many believe he really wanted his mother to take him back in at this stage, but she didn't want him enough. He ended up at his dad's house once again for a brief period... But again it didn't work out and kurt just couldn't live under their rules and lack of attention or affection donald packed up all of kurt's belongings and dropped him off at 8am in the morning at his mother's front doorstep kurt's relationship with his father would be a strained one after this with little to no contact between the two for the rest of his life finally kurt was accepted to move back to his mother's house in aberdeen but upon entering he realized she was drunk Kurt would soon discover that his mother was in a new relationship with a man named Patrick O'Connor, who would become his stepfather. He was abusive to both Kurt and his mother, getting involved in a number of domestic violence altercations and even going as far as breaking Wendy's arm after a terrible fight that Kurt was witness to. Wendy decided not to press charges and continued her relationship with the man, marrying him when Kurt was 17 and later giving birth to Kurt's half-sister, Brianne. But after Pat was found to have cheated on Wendy, she allegedly pulled a rifle on him before chucking his gun collection into the Wishka River. The story goes that Kurt then retrieved the weapons and is believed to have sold them, buying an amplifier for his guitar with the money. Kurt would often be belittled by his stepdad, who was usually drunk and aggressive towards him. The house was a toxic, tense and stressful environment to be in and was no better than living at his father's. But while living with his mother and stepdad kurt discovered marijuana for the first time as a means to calm his nerves stop breakdowns and lower stress levels as a form of escape from the twisted and confusing world he had been living in kurt craved attention and affection but was constantly left disappointed time and time again by his parents at times kurt would sneak pot out of his mother's jewelry drawer where she kept it and would replace it with the herb oregano That was until he began sourcing out his own drugs and began scoring it from a local dealer named Trevor. When returning to Aberdeen, Kurt attended J.M. Weatherwax High School, leaving behind his trusted group of friends at Montesano, where he felt he was popular enough to get by comfortably. But when attending high school in Aberdeen, Kurt struggled significantly to fit in and hardly knew anyone at school. Kurt had little success with girlfriends up to this point in time and was still a virgin which was something that constantly weighed on his mind. Kurt even made up stories of sleeping with a girl on holidays to get his peers off his back and to fit in with the popular crowd. Kurt took his rebellious behaviour to the next level as a way of fitting in and to impress his fellow students by smoking marijuana, cigarettes and drinking alcohol all the time. He fell into the wrong crowd, known as the stoners or losers, and began attending parties where he is said to have been all four, but when arriving his nerves would kick in, he struggled to socialise so he would leave to drink and smoke pot under the Young Street Bridge by the Wishka River. This would be Kurt's favourite hangout but before returning home he often waited for his stepdad to leave for work to avoid him. He would usually return home to find his mother drunk and Kurt would often sit on the rooftop of his mother's house to escape all the conflict and drama as more severe negative thoughts began entering his mind. Kurt befriended an older guy that he called the Kingpin named Trevor who supplied the marijuana, despite actually despising him as a person. Together with his group of friends, Ace, John, Darren, and of course Trevor, they would smoke pot together under the Young Street Bridge, or in the nearby forested area near the school, and listen to music while drinking cans of beer. In order to score more alcohol, Kurt reluctantly tagged along with his four drinking buddies to a fellow female student's house who appeared overweight and was unfairly ridiculed for being slow and illiterate and was unfairly labelled a retard. The mission was simple. Distract the girl by acting interested in her, open cupboards, pretending to eat her food, and make noise while someone runs down to the basement where the alcohol is kept and take as much booze as one can carry. The next step is to leave out the back door ...while the others slowly leave. Kurt felt bad about what they did to score the alcohol... ...but the boys continued this routine nearly every day... ...lasting for about a month before getting busted. As time went on and things worsened at Kurt's mother's house... ...as he witnessed more beatings from his stepfather... ...and started receiving verbal abuse from his mother... Kurt noticed the marijuana was no longer dulling the stress and nervous breakdowns he was having and felt it wasn't satisfying his cravings, so he decided to look for a new outlet. Kurt found this through stealing alcohol from liquor stores in town, shoplifting, getting in fights at school, smashing store windows, spray painting graffiti on vehicles and buildings and filling 7-up cans with rocks and throwing them at cars passing by, including police vehicles. Kurt had reached a new low and began questioning his role in life and self worth. He became severely depressed, stating in his journals quote, Nothing ever mattered. I decided that next month I wouldn't sit on my roof and think about jumping, but I'll actually kill myself. The only thing stopping him so far was the fact that he was yet to lose his virginity and wanted to know how it all felt before he went. Kurt was especially down about still being a virgin up until this point. And like many young men, he was determined to get rid of the dreaded virgin tag that was often teased at by the jocks. In order to overcome this, after school one day, Kurt ventured to the house of the girl who he and his mates had previously stole alcohol from. They sat for a moment sharing some Twinkies before Kurt decided to come on strong and asked if she wanted to have sex with him. The girl agreed. And they proceeded to her bedroom only to discover that kurt was not sure about how to actually have sex and asked if she had done it before which she replied only with my cousin kurt was shocked by this and was even more turned off by the girl's personal hygiene resulting in kurt deciding to leave with a negative first experience that would lead to a number of consequences kurt then decided to skip school for the week as he was far too embarrassed to face his peers and the girl When he returned, he received an in-house school suspension for skipping school, where he was required to attend school and complete his work away from the rest of the students. Soon the girl's father found out that someone from the school had been taking advantage of his daughter and showed up to the school angry, upset and shouting, with it soon becoming known to the students that Kurt was the one he was looking for. The principal and the girl's father got into a heated argument in the principal's office and the girl was told to look in the yearbook and find the boy but luckily for Kurt, he wasn't there for photos that day and was absent from the book. The following day, the girl had found out Kurt's name and word got around school that Kurt had slept with the girl and he was called the retard fucker. He was sworn at, spat on and laughed at. It was total humiliation, something Kurt hated feeling. This would prove to be the final tipping point for Kurt and everything came to a head that same evening. His home life had fallen apart, rumours were circulating around Aberdeen and he was being bullied at school. Kurt stated that, quote, I couldn't handle the ridicule. So Kurt then proceeded down to the train tracks late that Saturday night where he got drunk and stoned and laid himself on the train tracks and placed a piece of cement on his chest and on his leg to weigh himself down where he waited for the 11pm train. 11pm rolled around and sure enough a train approached in the distance as its blinding headlights got closer and closer. As Kurt laid there preparing to end his life The train miraculously travelled along the second track next to him as he sat face to face with the train rolling by in front of him in a state of shock. It was during this moment that Kurt realised he was here for a reason and decided to get on with his life. With the train scaring him so much, he applied himself more at school, he started improving on the guitar and he began lifting weights. Kurt felt like the depression was more bearable all of a sudden but he would lose all of his so-called friends through the rumours of bullying, as they too were part of the problem, labelling them as phonies. He developed a hatred and intolerance for most people after this, and attempted to choose his friends more wisely. Kurt later stated in his journals and tape recordings that he felt like his paranoia and nervousness was a sign that he might have schizophrenia, while also believing he had a form of OCD because he grew to obsess over hating people and feeling like most were a carbon copy of one another. Kurt would grow to despise those known as jocks and macho type men, which most likely stemmed from his father's behaviour. Kurt returned home to his mother's house that night, but over time he fell back into his old ways, as he refused to do chores and was committing crimes in the area. He fooled his mother and started skipping school by catching the bus there, but jumping off early and doing acid instead. Kurt was eventually questioned by the police over the rumours surrounding him and the girl he was intimate with as her father attempted to press charges. But the police said nothing could be done as she was 18, consenting and actually didn't have any mental disorder. Kurt continued to go to school briefly as he attempted to get his life back on track but it wasn't the same. Music was all Kurt wanted to pursue and his schooling started to drop off his list of priorities. Just before graduation, Kurt made the decision to drop out of school without any job to back him up as he realized that listening to and playing music was the only thing he wanted to spend his time on and that he didn't have enough credits to pass anyway. This led to a huge argument with his mother where she told him to find a job or get out. After a short amount of time passed and Kurt refused to find a job, his mother packed all of his belongings in boxes, threw his stuff onto the lawn and kicked him out of home for the final time. With nowhere really to go, and feeling unwelcome with family, Kurt spent many nights homeless and sleeping on friends couches, back patios, or even in the back of a car owned by the parents of a school friend. Kurt would walk to Grays Harbour Hospital, which was the same hospital where he was born, and sleep in the waiting room. He would help himself to the free coffee and refreshments, and watch the TV, acting as though he was waiting for someone, so he would never be harassed or asked to leave. Kurt would also break into houses that were still under development or old abandoned or vacated properties to rest for the night. Kurt would occasionally sleep on his dad's back patio without him even knowing he was there or he would wander the streets bored and often find himself up to no good, usually with graffiti involved. The days were long and aimless for Kurt. As he would take himself to the library during the day to pass the time as he enjoyed reading especially about the lives of famous musicians celebrities and about music in general while some reports say that he slept under his favorite hangout spot under the young street bridge kurt actually slept nearby in surrounding bushes on occasions off to the side of a track leading from the bridge the tide would come in and out and change all the time so sleeping on the muddy banks of the river would have been nearly impossible Kurt would occasionally see his parents, but only for brief visits and short stays at his dad's, before moving on again. During this period, Kurt started trying other drugs such as LSD, methadone, and was even said to be inhaling the gas found inside certain shaving creams and solvents, or anything to numb the pain. Kurt was quickly spiraling down a dark path as he searched for a purpose in life. After some time, he was offered to return to both his parents' houses as he wasn't doing so well, but this time around he decided he wasn't going back. He desperately tried to convince some of his friends to come with him to Seattle and find a place together to escape the isolated towns of Aberdeen and Montesano, but no one wanted to go with him. During 1985, Kurt was arrested after being caught spray painting a phrase, ain't got no it" on the side of vehicles and buildings around town. Just when things looked hopeless for Kurt, he was given a lifeline and taken in by his friend Jesse Reed and his religious family, where Jesse's father, David Reed, offered him a room and a chance to get his life back on track. Kurt stayed with the born-again Christians for some time, even attending church during this period, with religion becoming an important part of his life, despite later renouncing these beliefs. After staying at the Reed family's home for some time, the now 18-year-old Kurt and his friend Jesse then moved into an apartment together in Aberdeen in June of 1985. The apartment was very basic with little to no furniture, other than a dining table that was included with the rental. There was still a lack of job opportunities in the area, with 15% of the community out of work, including skilled and educated individuals. So all the two could do was drink, smoke, watch TV, and play music. At the age of 18, with no other options or skills, Kurt decided to pursue music as his career, with the help and inspiration of a growing local legend and friend in Buzz Osborne of the hardcore punk rock band, The Melvins. The Melvins were just starting to make a name for themselves and Kurt wanted a taste of what he saw Buzz and bandmates Dale Crover and Matt Lucan doing. They inspired Kurt that he too could break out of Aberdeen and do something meaningful and fulfilling such as performing as part of a band. During this period, Kurt and his friend Steve spent some time being roadies with the Melvins and travelling to gigs with them, setting up their equipment and experiencing the feel of a live audience. From September of 1985 to March of 1986, Kurt landed his first job and worked as a dishwasher, cleaner, prep and bus person at a restaurant called Lamplighters for $4.25 an hour. Around this time, Kurt's friend Jesse was forced to leave their shared apartment after joining the army. Kurt struggled to pay his rent due to his low income and was once again homeless, which left him with no choice but to quit his job. Instead of going back to family or his parents, he stayed with a school friend and fellow Melvins roadie, Steve, and his family. Steve's father, Lamont Schillinger, knew of Kurt from high school, as he was the school principal. Originally, Kurt was only intending to stay for one to two nights, but this soon became four more nights, two more weeks, and so on, eventually staying with the family for almost a year. The Schillinger family were very accepting and understanding and without asking, they knew that something must have been up with his situation with his parents and that when the time was right and things were better at home, he would surely move on. During this yearly period, Kurt stayed here with his guitar, keyboard, microphone and recorders and began adapting to life as part of their family. He was expecting to do chores such as lawn mowing, whippersnipping, dishes and cleaning on a rotating job chart. With the other five sons and daughter within the family despite complaining at times kurt enjoyed having a routine and the feeling of belonging and contributing to a family environment much of kurt's time would be spent with his friends paul white and steve schillinger down at the melvins rehearsal space unfortunately due to a falling out with one of the boys in the family after a fist fight in the backyard over an apparent band rivalry Kurt left and would find himself moving in with yet another school friend, this time sleeping on the couch at the family home of Chris Novoselic. Kurt first noticed the tall and lanky teen named Chris Novoselic while attending Aberdeen High School and described him as a class clown. Chris was older than Kurt by two years, so the two were in different grades, but Kurt often saw him around school and in Aberdeen. Chris Novoselic was born on the 16th of May 1965 in Compton, California to his Croatian immigrant parents Christo and Marija Novoselic. Chris moved from Compton after one year and relocated to the Croatian populated area of Los Angeles called San Pedro in 1966. In 1971, at age 6, the family would once again relocate due to a financial surge in rental prices in California, so they ended up in the town of Aberdeen when Kurt would have been 4 years old. Chris also had two younger siblings named Robert and Diana. At 15 years old in 1980, Chris was sent to live in Zadar in Croatia with extended family and returned the following year to Aberdeen in 1981 at the age of 16. Chris grew up listening to Chuck Berry with his father, and found himself getting into other bands such as Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, The Who, Van Halen, Aerosmith, and even Devo. Chris also listened to Croatian and Bosnian rock bands, and while living in Croatia for a year, he discovered the music of the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, while also citing Paul McCartney, Gene Simmons, and Geezer Butler as some of his bass playing influences. He would invest his time in learning the bass and got quite good at it, with his first bass guitar being an Ibanez Black Eagle, followed by an Ibanez Roadster as his first gigging bass, and soon found his favourite to be the Gibson Ripper. Kurt was friends with Robert, who was Chris's brother, when he first heard punk music blaring from the Novoselic household, realising it was Chris who was listening to it. Kurt would occasionally see Chris hanging out at the Melvins rehearsal space, as Chris too was a friend of the band's. When Buzz took Kurt to a Black Flag concert in the area, he finally met Chris officially for the first time, and the two bonded over their love of the Melvins and similar types of music. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going, so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do, it just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you could leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes, as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, You can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast and you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or, you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work, so your support would be greatly appreciated, as it means I can continue creating more content, such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at LyricsOfTheirLife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. In 1985, Kurt with Dale Crover of The Melvins started up a number of amateur mock style bands, the most notable of them being called Fecal Matter. They played covers of Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin and The Ramones and even wrote their own originals. Together with Dale Crover on drums, they recorded a demo tape on a four track at Kurt's auntie Mary Earls house in Seatac, Washington called Illiteracy Will Prevail, featuring 13 original tracks including Downer and Anorexis with Cobain noting his and Dale's mutual influence of Black Sabbath and Black Flag shone through into the music. While Dale later found the demo to be amateurish, Buzz Osborne thought it had a certain magic about it and that they had, quote, the ability to put something together in an interesting way. Throughout Kurt's time with Fecal Matter, he attempted to persuade Crist to join the band with him after learning the two had very similar music tastes, and after several unsuccessful attempts to lure Crist in, he eventually decided to join. This was after hearing a demo tape Kurt had recorded titled Spank Through that contains loads of references about masturbation. In 1986, Buzz Osborne and Mark Dillard joined Fecal Matter, and after just one live show under the alternate name, Brown Towel, in Olympia of May 1986, the band was left behind as Kurt felt Buzz wasn't taking the band seriously enough, despite it being a bit of fun anyway. With Kurt starting to jam with Chris, Kurt disbanded Fecal Matter and started planning to form their own band with a more serious approach. During Kurt's stay on Chris's couch, he began writing songs, tales, poems and short stories and adding music to them, which became an interesting and exciting time for Kurt. His lyrics would stem from both personal experiences and his imagination, usually blowing things out of proportion for effect. As he would explain in his journals, stating, My lyrics are a big pile of contradictions. They're split down the middle between very sincere opinions and feelings that I have. And sarcastic and hopefully humorous rebuttals towards cliche bohemian idols that have been exhausted for years in May of 1986 19 year old Kurt was arrested this time for trespassing and entering onto private property on the rooftop of an abandoned warehouse and was also found to be in possession of a small amount of marijuana despite now having a criminal record That same year, Kurt was successful in applying for his second paid job as a preschool swimming instructor, baseball coach and lifeguard at the local YMCA, this time for far less pay than his last job at $3.35 an hour. In September of 1986, Kurt's mother Wendy lent Kurt $200 so he could move into a rental house with Melvin's member Matt Lucan located on second street in aberdeen the beat-up old house would become a jamming space for kurt and christ despite many thinking it was unlivable dirty and a run-down old dive of a place kurt was proud of it and loved having his own space for creating music kurt could be heard throughout the neighborhood thrashing away on his now iconic 1970s univox high flyer guitar which is seen in many images from the time as the guitar covered in stickers While Chris was the glue that held the band together, Kurt would be the one in charge, writing music, organising gigs, rehearsal times and was mostly his vision. They would also utilise the building that Chris's mother owned for a hair salon by jamming upstairs. After their first band together fell apart, they were inspired by how much the Melvins made per gig and decided to start a Creedence Clearwater Revival tribute band where Kurt played drums and Chris sang and played guitar. But this was also short-lived, and Kurt moved back to singing when they found a drummer. During September of 1986, in order to pay for his rent, Kurt quit his low-paying job at the YMCA and landed one as a cleaner and maintenance worker at a place called the Polynesian Resort, located 20 miles from Aberdeen, at Ocean Shores in Washington. Kurt cleaned rooms and even cleaned fireplace chimneys as part of his job. He would occasionally sneak into the vacant rooms and switch the TV on during work hours and fall asleep on the hotel beds. As Kurt had a bit more cash flow due to his job, he was able to attend more concerts of punk and rock bands performing in the local area of Olympia and Seattle. Kurt was especially interested in the underground scene that attracted him to Olympia on regular occasions. It was during a Melvins concert in Olympia that Kurt would cross paths of his first serious girlfriend, Tracy Miranda. Kurt had caught the eye of Tracy and her friends a number of times at Melvins gigs in the area until the two were finally introduced properly at a party. Tracy was the perfect girl for Kurt who shared the same love of punk rock music and also a variety of other genres. She was right into bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and the punk rock scene maybe even more so than Kurt. Tracy would also open his mind to fuse different music from different scenes. She knew all about Kurt's favourite bands and could talk for hours about them. After Kurt lost his job at the Polynesian Resort for a number of indiscretions, including being caught sleeping on the job and struggling to get along with co-workers, Kurt couldn't afford to pay his rent for his house with Matt Lucan. Luckily for Kurt, he and Tracy's relationship became serious quite quickly and Kurt moved in with Tracy. During April of 1987, Tracy helped Kurt move to Olympia to live with her in her apartment, as Kurt left his hometown of Aberdeen, making the 52-minute drive to his new home in Olympia. At first, Kurt loved what Olympia represented, with its rich artistic culture and the unique scenery and setting of the town, as it sits by the water, surrounded by mountains the community spirit where everyone helped one another and played in each other's bands, and the many concerts held in the town that he would attend with Tracy and her college friends. The music scene in the area wasn't huge, but there was a variety, and at the time, it was starting to grow with many street performers present also. Much of the town was made up of students attending the local university, so a young, vibrant population of around 30,000 people at the time was evident. With the influence of Tracy and her group of college friends, Kurt began listening to more garage rock type bands such as Young Marble Giants, Velvet Underground, The Pixies, Sonic Youth and The Vaselines, where he started fusing this style with punk rock to create his own style and sound. Despite all of this, Kurt would grow bored of the town rather quickly as their idea of a party was drinking coffee instead of booze and there was no drugs. Kurt was very shy when the two would go out to parties together and most likely suffered from social anxiety as he would struggle to introduce himself to new people but would occasionally come out of his shell. Tracy was a very supportive partner for Kurt who cared for him almost in a nurturing role. She would take him out to dinner, cook for him, pay his bills, take him thrift shopping to find his favourite second hand clothing and they would also hang out together like an old married couple. Tracy worked long hours, sometimes up to 50 to 60 hours a week, in the Seattle Tacoma Airport Cafeteria, which allowed Kurt to stay home and work on his dream as a musician and his passion for art. Although Tracy was doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the relationship, she didn't mind as she knew that Kurt and his band had potential and she was determined to help him be successful. Of course they fought over things like money and Kurt refusing to clean, but the two also got along great and had lots of fun together. The time spent in Olympia with Tracy would prove to be instrumental for Kurt's career, as many songs including the track About a Girl would stem from this time, as Tracy allowed him the chance to hone his skills, be creative and experimental. Tracy allowed Kurt to spend his money earned from gigs into upgrading and buying equipment or instruments, instead of putting his money into bills even buying him a white 1970s Univox High Flyer guitar for his birthday one year. Tracy remembers that Kurt loved chilling in their backyard and going on nature walks together. Tracy described him as funny, loving, but also scared of being hurt, stemming from being bullied at school and his upbringing. She also remembers Kurt saying that he wanted to be a success and to not just be playing in bars because he wanted a comfortable life for a change. Kurt would spend most of his days sleeping into the late evening and staying up into the early hours of the morning, watching TV, writing songs, playing his guitar, smoking pot, creating comic strips and painting incredible artworks on canvases. Kurt would create dolls by getting model skeletons and moulding clay around them, shaping them into dolls and placing clothes on them. He would also draw political sketches, aimed against society's views at the time on religion, women, and homosexuals, as he felt very strongly about being respectful to others, and he wanted change. As Tracy was often out of the house, Kurt would have to look after their pet cat Melvin, their pet rat named Kitty, and their pet turtles and birds. But what Tracy didn't know, that was Kurt wasn't just smoking marijuana, but he had tried heroin for the first time in 1987 and that he would use another 10 times before the year 1990, which he revealed in his journals. Kurt would reveal in his journals that he started using the drug as a method to temporarily reduce his chronic stomach pain after no doctors knew what to diagnose him with, as he suffered from a condition that would cause Kurt to vomit and cough blood. Due to the inability to keep food down at times, because of the condition, the pain would increase significantly, making it debilitating and uncomfortable to live with, and therefore, Kurt hated eating and would rarely put on weight. When the condition eventually did settle down, Kurt wrote in his journals, quote, For five years, every single day, an ongoing stomach ailment had literally taken me to the point of wanting to kill myself. Kurt would claim his vocal ability with his painful screams stemmed from his burning stomach pain. Despite Kurt's initial belief that heroin would help this problem, it would cause a lifelong addiction that would contribute to the end of his life. During the early stages of the band, Chris and Kurt went through a number of different band names that they brainstormed, which are evident in Kurt's personal journals, including names such as Boy in Heat, Libido, The Mandibles, Cold and Wet, Windowpane, Drugs for Sale, Erectum, Syringe, Smellfish, Manbug, Godchild, Novocaine, Breed, and Perkadin, as the list goes on. Some of the most memorable names that they perform gigs under included The Sellouts, Pen Cap Chew, Bliss, Ted Ed Fred, and Skid Row, until coming up with the perfect name, Nirvana. It is said that Kurt chose this name due to his interest in Buddhist philosophy and described it as freedom from pain, suffering and the external world. He would also reveal about the name later on that, quote, We wanted a name that was kind of beautiful instead of a mean, raunchy punk name like the Angry Samoans. With Kurt on guitar and vocals and Chris on bass, they soon found themselves in search of a drummer. It wouldn't be easy to find the perfect drummer for the band as they went through a number of them in the early stages. They originally started with Bob McFadden in early 1987, for a brief stint of around three to four weeks, who met Chris through his brother Robert, and said himself that he didn't understand what they were trying to do, and he didn't gel with the band. After Bob decided he wasn't working out and quit the band, Chris and Kurt went to a friend of Bob's and fellow drummer named Aaron Burkhardt for a period of time. In the time that Aaron was the drummer for the band, they would play their first show together at Aaron Burkhard's friend's house, located in the woods in Raymond, Washington. Kurt described it as an enjoyable show, and that they were so noisy that they frightened all the partygoers who were all stoned. Kurt, Christ and Aaron played so loud that they scared all of the audience into the kitchen. In the early days, the band played loud, unorthodox and very heavy punk music, before evolving their sound and becoming stronger musicians nirvana's first few shows consisted of playing at parties and at small venues while a mixture of cover versions of Creedence clearwater revival the cars and punk music were played along with new original material and songs from fecal matters demo tape including spank through and downer in december of 1987 Aaron Burkhardt left the band after Kurt's frustration towards Aaron grew over his lack of seriousness towards the band's ambitions including skipping practice, his aggressive and hot-headed behavior often leading to fights with people and having Kurt's car impounded by the police in a drink driving offense which was the final straw in the end Aaron was almost impossible to track down so they opted to move on around the same time Kurt moved to Olympia with Tracy Chris had moved to the city of Tacoma, close to Seattle, and approximately a 30-minute drive to Olympia. Tacoma would now become their regular jam and rehearsal space. Kurt and Chris had been working extremely hard to make it, but they needed something to show for all their dedication and professionalism. Together they decided that they wanted to record a demo tape to hand to local radio stations and record labels, but realized they didn't have enough money to pay for a recording session. Chris was already working as a painter and decorator, was about to be let go from his position and Kurt felt it was unfair that Tracy was paying for everything. So Kurt decided to apply for another job as a janitor at the local high school and got the position. This was a relief for Tracy and Kurt after the two had been constantly arguing over finances. Kurt hated this job as he struggled to hold back his anger over his seedy redneck work colleagues as they would talk disrespectfully about women. Despite this, Kurt earned just enough to help pay for the band's recording session. On the 23rd of January 1988, at Reciprocal Recording Studios in Seattle, Kurt and Chris would record their first demo tape together with Melvin's and Fecal Matter drummer, Dale Crover feeling Burkhard's place on drums. Together they were able to scrape together $152.77, which got them 6 hours of studio time at around $20 an hour recording nine songs and one unfinished track. Kurt, Dale and Chris put all they had into the six hours of recording and came out with a solid demo tape, including three songs that would later feature on their debut album, with a mixture of new songs they had written and reworked Fecal Matter tracks. Kurt sent the demo tape inside gift bags to around 25 big and small labels with outrageous and random gifts inside to get their attention, including used condoms, little toy plastic ants, and confetti, but they got no response. Kurt desperately wanted to get signed by a label called Touch and Go, who had some of his favourite artists on their books such as Butthole Surfers, Scratch Acid, and Big Black, as he sent off 20 copies over time just to that one company. The producer for their demo tape, Jack Endino, was blown away by Cobain's voice, their level of professionalism, and he loved the youthful heavy rock sound they produced. In particular, he enjoyed the chemistry between Kurt and Chris. Endino thought the tape was that good that he passed it on to the guys at a small indie label called Sub Pop, who were starting to make a name for themselves by signing similar bands to their label, with their most recent releases at the time being Mud Honey and Soundgarden's debut singles. When receiving the tape, Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman at Sub Pop liked what they heard, but weren't sure about them, as they lacked live experience, only playing to small crowds and at parties mainly in Olympia and Tacoma. Shortly after having their demo tape recorded, Kurt and Chris would officially call themselves Nirvana, but unfortunately, respected drummer Dale Crover left the band after relocating to San Francisco with Buzz Osborne and the Melvins. With Crover being a good friend of the band for many years, and not wanting to leave them high and dry, he recommended another drummer from Aberdeen named Dave Foster for the job. With Foster joining the band, they would perform for the first time under the name Nirvana at the Community World Theatre in Tacoma on the 19th of March, 1988. With Kurt even drawing up their own promotional poster with a Grim Reaper on the front, and charging $5 entry fees. In the band's early days, they were rough around the edges and disorganised with many pauses and large breaks in between songs, but the more they played, the tighter they became. Kurt would smash his guitar in a fit of rage towards the end of the show and would have it all glued back together to do it all again at the next show, pulling a stunt by swapping out his good guitar for the one to be smashed. Dave Foster would be the drummer for Nirvana for a few months and only played a handful of gigs before being replaced after he failed to show up for rehearsals a number of times and was sent to jail for two weeks for assault after fighting the son of the mayor of the town, Cosmopolis, located near Aberdeen. Kurt and Chris grew frustrated and when they got back in contact with Aaron Burkhardt, they reinstated him to the band where they played just a few shows. Dave Foster found out the hard way that they had been playing with a different drummer when he saw advertisement posters for shows around the area. But once again, Kurt and Chris would be disappointed with Aaron's lack of professionalism when he told them he was too intoxicated to rehearse and cut him out once again. Kurt and Chris placed posters up and an ad in the local Seattle newspaper called The Rocket looking for a drummer, but it was all to no avail. With Chris and Kurt's quest to find a reliable drummer almost seeming hopeless, at a Nirvana show in the Tacoma area one evening, Kurt and Krist were introduced to a drummer named Chad Channing, who had become the official third member of the band. Kurt, Krist, and Chad would play as Nirvana for the first time together during May of 1988. Chad Channing, who was the same age as Kurt, came from the Santa Rosa area in California and after shattering his femur at the age of 13 while in PE, he took up the bass guitar and took an interest in music during his rehabilitation period as he could not attend school due to the extent of the injury. Once he was allowed out of his cast, his parents purchased him a drum kit to help strengthen his legs in a way that he would enjoy. Channing never looked back and was hooked on becoming a drummer, forming his first band called Stone Crow in 1985 as an 18-year-old, alongside his friend and rhythm guitarist Jason Everman, who would eventually join Nirvana in 1989, as an unofficial and touring member of the band. When Channing started a band called Tick Dolly Row, it would lead him to play at the same gigs with Nirvana, who were known as Bliss at the time. As time went on, Channing was introduced to the band by a mutual friend at the Tacoma Show. Sometime later, Channing became the drummer for Nirvana after Kurt claimed he just kept showing up to rehearsals and was actually never told he was in. He would get along well with Kurt and was very similar in personality as he was quiet, shy and didn't exactly like meeting new people. Channing was a talented drummer and was perfect to help launch Nirvana's career. After two smaller shows in Olympia... And at the Central Tavern in Seattle, on the 24th of April 1988, the now established lineup of Nirvana, including Kurt, Chad, and Christ, played in Seattle at a small club called The Vogue. The gig was set up by Sub Pop to see if Nirvana had what it took to be signed to their record label. Usually, if a band they trialled were unsuccessful, they would be written a letter that brutally read, at the top, Dear Loser, before telling them they were not being signed. Before walking onto stage, Kurt was extremely nervous and began vomiting, which he would do before many shows throughout his career. But Kurt knew the pressure was a lot different surrounding this gig, as it was their biggest chance yet to be signed. Drawing in just 20 people to the gig, it went down as one of the worst gigs the band had played together, with the crowd just not getting the style of music they were playing. Full of nerves, all members struggled to get through their 14-song set that included an intriguing cover version of Love Buzz, originally by Dutch band Shocking Blue, known for their hit Venus. Despite disappointing a majority of the small crowd with their performance and Kurt feeling as though they had blown their one shot, the one and only audience member that mattered was Jonathan Poneman from Sub Pop and he felt completely the opposite and thought that Love Buzz should become their debut single with Sub Pop as it was their best live track. With their cover of Love Buzz saving the day, Sub Pop got Nirvana into the studio to record Love Buzz, but from the start, Kurt felt like they were being influenced too heavily by what their new label wanted, after cutting a section out at the beginning that Kurt wanted in there, which included 40 seconds of cartoon snippets. But at the end of the day, they had just recorded their debut single, and they weren't about to step on anyone's toes just yet. In November of 1988, Love Buzz was released with the track Big Cheese on the B-side. 1,000 copies were made and distributed to Sub Pop Singles subscribers and throughout the Seattle area, even reaching as far as the UK, where it received positive reviews and landed them an interview with John Robb on Sounds UK Music newspaper, earning them Single of the Week in their edition. Kurt did however notice the one bad review Love Buzz received, which Chris later revealed, Kurt hated being humiliated with a passion. Despite not worrying Chris and Chad as much, Kurt was really cut up by the review with his problem with humiliation, likely stemming from his father, stepfather and high school years. Love Buzz soon became a big underground success and Nirvana were marketed by Sub Pop as rough country hicks from logging families, which they personally hated, but it worked well in the local Seattle area as they were relatable and their dress code was usually flannelette shirts and jeans anyway. The track Big Cheese was written about their Sub Pop manager Jonathan Poneman, with Kurt stating to biographer Michael Azarad, I was expressing all of the pressures that I felt from him at the time because he was being so judgmental about what we were recording. In order to get their name out there, Kurt handed copies of the demo to everyone he could, including radio stations, in the hopes that a station would play Nirvana's single Love Buzz. Kurt asked Tracy to pull over at a gas station after delivering the tapes and rang one of the radio stations and requested their own song. After driving off later that day, Nirvana's debut single, Love Buzz, was played over radio. Kurt couldn't believe it, as Tracy recalls that he couldn't wipe the smile off of his face. Quickly, the song became a local favourite in the Seattle area, being requested on radio over and over again by listeners. Once Nirvana was starting to make waves, they would help start what would become known as the Seattle Sound Movement. The new movement was in full swing, with a mixture of alternative garage rock, thrash, metal and punk rock and was labelled as grunge due to the anger and pain in the style of music they played. The new grunge genre looked certain to reshape rock and pop music defining the first half of the 90s era bringing about a new generation of bands and drawing in a generation of kids and teens looking for music that defined them. Bands like Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Mudhoney and Soundgarden were the biggest names rising to the top at the time, with Nirvana. Kurt's stage presence, although not flashy or colourful, he drew people in with his energy and intensity, his balance of fragile and reserved but angry and resentful persona, his obvious raw talent and his aching roaring voice that bleeds emotion and pain. Kurt's ability on guitar, although not textbook, was fresh and unique. He was mainly self-taught as he fused guitar patterns and sounds that usually wouldn't accompany each other. And also his charm and good looks with blonde mid-length hair and blue eyes attracted female fans to the band. Sub Pop knew they had something highly marketable with Kurt and Nirvana and quickly moved to get Nirvana in the studio once again to record another EP. But Kurt and Chris were adamant they wanted to do an LP, or full album, and after much discussion, it was agreed upon. After two to three weeks of rehearsals, Nirvana went back to Reciprocal Recording Studios in Seattle to record their debut album once again with producer Jack Endino. From the 24th of December 1988 to January 24th 1989, Nirvana recorded the full-length album and utilized three tracks from their first demo tape with Dale Crover, including the songs Downer, Paper Cuts and Floyd the Barber. Most of the other tracks, lyrics and rhythms, except for about a girl, had been written the night before their first recording session for the album, as they came with no material already, and Kurt wrote the tracks while feeling pissed off, which is the exact vibe the album gives off. Producer Jack Endino said that all instruments were pretty much done in just one take, despite a couple of overdubs, and the process was quite quick and efficient. The album overall would cost the band just $606.27 to record, spending just 30 hours in the studio. Friend of the band and live rhythm guitarist Jason Everman would pay the fee for the band, and despite not playing any instrument in the recording process, he was credited in the album booklet, which in Chris Novoselic's view was to make him feel more welcome as the newest member of the band and as a thank you for footing the bill. Kurt's girlfriend Tracy would take the famous image for the album cover of the album cover artwork at a live show, with Jason also featuring on it as the fourth member. After a number of delays including album sequencing and Sub Pop's financial situation, the album titled Bleach was finally released to the public on the 15th of June 1989. Originally, the album was going to be titled Too Many Humans, but was changed to Bleach in relation to an advertisement Kurt discovered while driving through San Francisco that was directed at heroin users, encouraging them to bleach their needles before use due to the rise of AIDS at the time, with the slogan reading, Bleach Your Works. The Bleach album was a mix of angsty raw material, displaying a more heavier style of music compared to their later work. Kurt felt like he was forced to make it sound more grungy, as Sub Pop were pushing that style of music. He felt he could write more artistic and pop-centered tracks, but had to conform to Sub Pop's demands. While Kurt was quoted as saying, Most of the lyrics on the Bleach album are about my life in Aberdeen, he also stated, It was like, I'm pissed off, don't know what about, let's just scream negative lyrics, and as long as they're not sexist and don't get too embarrassing, it'll be okay. I don't hold any of these lyrics dear to me, but despite these comments, the songs on Bleach most definitely reflect Kurt's beliefs and experiences growing up and go a lot deeper than what he reveals. After Love Buzz was released as a single, the track Blue would become the band's second release during November of 1989, with a heavy bassline, distorted guitar, and Kurt's growling vocals. Blue would open the album and speaks of themes evident in Kurt's journals and personal ideologies referring to entrapment and longing to break free from the restrictions of everyday society, including the people of his town of Aberdeen, feeling as though he is being suffocated. With a great solo from Kurt on guitar, it is one of the better heavy tracks on the album, and even managed to reach number 15 on the UK Indie Chart. The second track on the album, Floyd the Barber, stemmed from Kurt's warped imagination, as he sings about a small town where everyone is a murderer before the main character is mutilated by the barber named Floyd from the US sitcom The Andy Griffith Show. Arguably, the album's best and most memorable track, hands down, is titled About a Girl, that Kurt wrote about his then-girlfriend, Tracy Miranda. The track is quite stripped down, slower, and heavy-hearted than most of his other songs on the album, and stands out as Kurt's ability to write a good pop-rock song with melody shines through. It was believed that Kurt had wrote the song about Tracy after a number of arguments with her over their financial troubles and Kurt's lack of housekeeping skills. Upon further inspection of the lyrics, it seems as though Kurt was feeling ashamed as he had in a way been using Tracy for his own personal gain in their relationship for his emotional support, living and financial needs, and feeling guilty by committing to this, by singing the lyric, I do after every line. Like he is admitting to have been using Tracy, and committing to this way of life, like one would say I do in their vows when getting married. As Kurt sings, I need an easy friend, I do. With an ear to lend, I do. Think you fit this shoe, I do. But you have a clue, I'll take advantage while you hang me out to dry but I can't see you every night, free, I do. It seems Kurt is singing from the perspective that he is getting used to being looked after by Tracy and taking advantage of the situation, describing it as freeing and making reference to Tracy being out so much working as he doesn't see her every night and the guilt he feels when they fight over money and his contribution to the household. Tracy has been so accommodating in their relationship to the point where Kurt has realised he can get away with most things. Kurt wrote the song straight after listening to the Beatles album Meet the Beatles on repeat one afternoon and also wrote the song as a form of love letter to the Beatles. Kurt was worried about including the track as it may have seemed like he was selling out on the underground grunge scene, stating, I was heavily into pop, I really liked R.E.M. and I was also into all kinds of old 60s stuff, but there was a lot of pressure within the social scene, the underground, like the kind of thing that you get in high school and to put a jangly R.E.M. type of pop song on a grunge record in that scene was risky. The track highlighted Cobain's ability as a good songwriter, and that if they wanted, Nirvana could be more versatile and branch into the mainstream. Other notable tracks on the album include the track School, which has a heavy rock and fast-paced beat, as Kurt screams the iconic line, No recess. The song speaks about the grunge scene, and how the clicks seemed similar to his days at school, as he sings the line, You're in high school again. Kurt hated jocks, bullies and macho men, and it felt like that's who he was now singing to in the crowd. This bothered Kurt greatly, and for Kurt it was a massive contradiction and battle within himself to enjoy the music he was playing, and for the types of fans he was attracting. The heavily distorted track Paper Cuts was written by Kurt about a family from his hometown of Aberdeen that were arrested for keeping their kids locked up in the attic after learning of this through the local news. Kurt stated about the song and the incident, saying His brother and sister were locked in a house and abused by their parents for years. They were treated as dogs for the first five or six years of their lives. Kurt backs up this statement in the song, where he sings from the perspective of the hostage children, singing She pushed food through the door, and I crawled towards the crack of light. The track that followed this was titled Negative Creep, and draws similarities to one of Kurt's idols growing up in Lemmy Kilmeister of Motorhead. The vocals almost mimicking Lemmy, but with the trademark Kurt Cobain screams of pain and anguish. The song is self-reflective in some ways, as Kurt sings about an individual, who is always looking at the world in a negative light, as he stated, I just always saw myself as a negative person. Despite Kurt feeling like this, little did he know that many felt the same and that his music would resonate with them. The next track, Scoff, stemmed from his personal experiences growing up and being told he would never be good enough or amount to anything by his father who told him to give up the guitar and punk rock music. Despite this, Kurt had lots of support from his extended family who all helped influence and encourage his musical ambitions. The song Mr. Moustache Speaks of Kurt's hatred towards macho men and the need to break down stereotypes surrounding the way men should be perceived or how they should behave. The Bleach album overall didn't sell great, with around 30 to 40,000 copies sold at the time. Frustrating Kurt over Sub Pop's handling of distribution, but their sales were still considered solid for an underground band. But it did however receive positive reviews. Nirvana managed to sign an extended contract with Sub Pop and a larger fanbase started to form. NME journalist Edwin Pouncey gave it a great review scoring it 8 out of 10 and stating Biggest baddest sound that Sub Pop have so far managed to unearth. So primitive that they managed to make label mates Mudhoney sound like Genesis. Nirvana turn up the volume and spit and claw their way to the top of the musical Garbage Heap. To this day, despite not selling too many copies initially, Bleach would remain Sub Pop's best-selling album of all time, with around 2 million selling in the US, and around 4.5 million worldwide. In order to promote the album, Nirvana with Jason Everman set out on their first national tour in June 1989, performing at many college gigs and clubs after Bleach became a hit on college radio. During July through to August, Nirvana cancelled the tour after live guitarist Jason Everman lost his passion for the band, he started to recluse, and wasn't up to socialising with Kurt and Krist. only his friend Chad. Kurt and Krist then wanted him out of the band, but couldn't get the nerve to fire him. After he had also failed to take Nirvana seriously, thinking they wouldn't last, and he hated touring in their tiny van, he instead decided to take up a position with Soundgarden. Nirvana returned to Washington before Sub Pop convinced them to get back on the road as a three-piece that same month. From October 23, 1989 to April 10, 1990, Nirvana toured with another grunge band from Seattle named Tad, who were also under contract with Sub Pop, with both bands travelling together in a single white van, making for an uncomfortable trip together due to a lack of funding from Sub Pop together with tad nirvana went on a world tour of england the netherlands west germany hungary austria switzerland france belgium and italy before returning to the states touring canada and mexico also nirvana then toured solo around the us for their final leg wrapping up their incredible tour on the 17th of may 1990 after 80 gigs the tour was tough on the band especially for kurt who started to feel the pressure of touring while on tour Kurt thrashed about violently, drawing in crowds from all over, as Kurt entertained them with his stage dives, his guitar showmanship, as he spins around in circles on the floor while playing heavily distorted riffs, jumping from amplifiers, and Chris and Kurt would throw their guitars at one another and smash their guitars into walls and the stage floor, creating pure chaos and anger-filled high-energy performances. While Kurt loved to perform live, the travel affected him significantly as they toured for six months straight. The European tour especially was torturous, with 36 shows in 42 days for little to no money. Subpop were ill-equipped, adding no financial support, and were in over their head managing Nirvana. Nirvana and Tab were basically managing themselves, with Chris the only high school graduate handling their finances. They would drive in their cramped Fiat van together all through the night to reach their destination. To make matters worse, Kurt's stomach condition started acting up, forcing them to make stops at hotels for the night where his bandmates would find him in pain staring up at the ceiling, exhausted and on the verge of collapse. Kurt even expressed that he missed Aberdeen and his mother and even considered walking off the tour to visit her. On November 27th, 1989, Nirvana would perform their 30-second show on their European leg at the Piper Club in Rome. Just a couple of songs into the set, Kurt would reach breaking point and started having a nervous breakdown on stage. Running on little sleep, Kurt felt like the music they were playing that night sounded terrible. The speakers and sound system had been playing up and it all hit him at once. Kurt freaked out and started banging his head on the speakers, screaming, throwing himself and his arms about violently and slamming his guitar onto the stage floor. He then proceeded to climb a 30 foot stack of speakers and declared to the audience that he was going to jump and kill himself as he continues to strum his guitar while standing on top of the speakers. As the music stops playing, Kristen and Chad started to worry and attempted to talk him down. Kurt kept refusing and making matters worse were the Italian fans screaming jump jump who thought it was part of their gimmick. Eventually Kurt climbed down and then announced to the crowd that he was splitting up the band before walking off. Luckily this wasn't the end for the band despite rumours circulating. After Kurt's meltdown he would perform in the final shows of the European Leg before returning to his home in Olympia. It was a busy time for Nirvana with Chris marrying a woman named Shelly Hyrakus, who he dated back in school in 1989. And during that time, towards the end of 1989, Nirvana even found the time to record the Blue EP, which signaled a directional change towards more thought-out lyrics and pop-centered melodies creeping into their music. The standout track on the EP included "Being A Son, which is a catchy punk tune that speaks about a girl that should have been born a son in her parents' eyes. As they had hoped for a baby boy in the song's lyrics kurt takes a stab at men that feel as though women should be seen as second-class citizens and stands up for his feminist beliefs on the 2nd of april of 1990 nirvana were back in the studio after a gig the night before at the metro in chicago to work on their next album this time with producer butch fig at smart studios in wisconsin Butch Vig, who was an up-and-coming producer, described them as three scraggly-looking, greasy, dirty kids. He didn't enjoy their last album, Bleach, but he saw potential through the Beatles-inspired track about a girl. Vig remembers Chris and Chad being funny, friendly and outgoing, while Kurt was rather reserved and quiet and just said hello while unpacking his gear. After Kurt sat solo in the corner of the room for a while, he finally warmed to Butch and was ready to start recording. After Chris explained to Butch that it was nothing personal, it's just Kurt got like that occasionally. Butch was impressed by what he heard and that there were definitely strong songs in there that got him excited. After a week of recording, Nirvana would continue touring and Butch would hand a copy of the recording to Sub Pop, only to receive no reply for some time, which would turn out to be over Sub Pop flirting with bankruptcy and not knowing where their future lied. Jonathan Poman of Sub Pop would use Nirvana and Butcher's demo tape as bait to lure in a new deal as they attempted to link up under a major label. Unbeknown to Sub Pop, Nirvana were also looking to find a similar deal of their own after becoming frustrated with the little cash flow that was coming in and their restrictions on the band's output and style. Nirvana's final show of the Bleach Tour was at a venue called The Zoo in Boyce, Idaho, but unfortunately... Chad Channing would play his final gig here with Nirvana in May of 1990 after Kurt and Chris came to a mutual agreement to let him go as they were unhappy with his drumming when they attempted to get back in the studio where they were looking for a different sound to appeal to their altered style for their next album. It's believed Chad also wanted to have more of a say in regards to songwriting which Kurt objected to. That same week, Kurt would also break up with his loyal girlfriend Tracy Miranda after coming to the realisation that the two of them weren't working out after three years together. Kurt's touring schedule proved too much for Tracy who had been very supportive of him while Kurt's mental health had declined while on the road while his personality and affection towards Tracy had also changed. Tracy struggled to move out of their home in Olympia due to a lack of money as she was still paying for bills. The two shared the house until Tracy found a new home in Tacoma in July and moved out leaving Kurt to pay for the rent all on his own, which he failed to keep up with when he returned to tour, resulting in him losing the house that became filled with rubbish, dirty dishes and laundry. The truth was, Kurt had been unfaithful while touring in Texas when he spent the night with a groupie. Kurt quickly moved on and re-partnered this time falling hard for a strong, independent, badass punk rocker named Toby Vale in July of 1990. Toby was a female drummer for a punk rock band named Bikini Kill, alongside lead singer Kathleen Hanna, located in the Olympia area, and were known for their strong feminist beliefs as part of the Riot Girl punk movement. Kurt described the first time he laid eyes on her that he felt so nervous that he threw up. The relationship, however, was short-lived, only lasting several months and kurt was shattered when it was over despite kurt falling for toby she would never be the supportive and nurturing wife material that made tracy so great for him toby never wanted anything too serious as she saw man as more of an accessory unfortunately for kurt he loved her more than she loved him and he fell in too deep their relationship didn't really go much deeper than physical or talk of music or politics Her effect on Kurt wasn't overly positive though, as he was so in love that he started contradicting himself, pretending to like similar things to Toby that he would usually despise, such as bands or political matters. Kurt's time with Toby, however, did have a positive influence on his beliefs of misogyny and feminism as he became a spokesperson for their movement in interviews and in his music. While they were together, they wrote songs and recorded a demo together on Toby's father's 4-track, called bathtub is real with both their voices blending well together but the songs wouldn't be released many great Nirvana songs would stem from this relationship which would be included on their next album as the two stayed friends despite Kurt's despair it was after their breakup however that Kurt started doing more heroin and would quickly become addicted to the drug to suppress his stomach pain and depression Kurt stated that after taking heroin for three straight days his pain would go away and it was a huge relief. The drug was just starting to become more popular in the Seattle area at the time, leading to easy access to drug dealers. While Kurt would hide the use of the drug from Chris and those close to him for some time, Buzz Osborne believed that his stomach problem most likely arose from the heroin itself, and said, quote, he made it up for sympathy, and so he could use it as an excuse to stay loaded. Of course he was vomiting. That's what people on heroin do. They vomit. It's called vomiting with a smile on your face. As Kurt left behind Tracy Miranda and Nirvana left behind Chad Channing, once again Nirvana would need to find a new drummer. Tune into part 2 for the next chapter of the story, where things dramatically change for the small town band from Aberdeen, and Kurt meets a new love that ultimately changes his life forever. Thank you for tuning in to part one. Don't forget to check out parts two and three also to complete the incredible story of Kurt Cobain's life and career. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive new episodes direct to you when they become available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then feel free to head to Patreon where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. Once again, Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.